and get our Bibles out to the Gospel of John, which in your pew Bible will be on page 896. If you uh, do not have a Bible and you need a Bible, you can just take one of these black pew Bibles in front of you, take it home and read it. We are in our second sermon in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. And in this second sermon, I've got three things that I want you to see from the text. Three things. I could not get a good alliterative way of saying this this morning, so I'm just going to tell you what I want you to see, and if you're a note taker, you can just figure it out. Number one, I want you to see the fact that Jesus is creating a new flock. I want you to see the fact that Jesus is creating a new flock. Number two, I want you to see the way in which Jesus is creating a new flock. And then number three, I want you to see the reason why Jesus is creating a new flock. Let's just jump right in. Point number one. The fact that Jesus is creating a new flock. Let me tell you up front that this will be the longest point, maybe 30 minutes or so. So if I get done with point number one and I say, and now on to point two, and your heart stops. Oh no, only on to point two. Don't worry, the the points are actually going to get shorter as we go. Point number one, the longest. Point number two, medium. Point number three, pretty quick. The main theme of our text this morning is that Jesus' sheep hear his voice, and always, always, always come to him when he calls. But that leads us to ask, why is it that Jesus is calling his sheep out of the sheepfold? Maybe you've forgotten from our sermon last week that Jesus was in fact calling his sheep out of the old sheepfold. So let's go back to John chapter 10, and let's read verses 1 through 21 to make sure we have our bearings, and then we'll ask this question of why Jesus is calling sheep out of the sheepfold, starting in verse 1. Truly, 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 I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, They did not understand what he was saying to them. So, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was, again, a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. So, back to our question. Why is Jesus calling his sheep out of the sheepfold? The answer, I think, is in verse 16, where most of our work is going to be done this morning. Look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now, we already saw last week that Jesus was going up to the flock and calling his sheep out by name. They recognize his voice. Who is the flock that Jesus is approaching to call out his sheep? What's the people of Israel? The old covenant nation of Israel, the Jews. Now, in order to understand the rest of this morning's sermon, we need to make sure we understand their story. So let's pause here and consider their story for a moment just to make sure that we're all on the same page, okay? All the way back in Genesis, after the fall of mankind in sin, God made a promise Almost as soon as he cursed us for our sin, he made a promise that he would rescue us from our sin, that he would come and pull us out of a lost and dying world. A little bit later, God reiterated that promise to a man named Abraham. He initiated a covenant relationship. Remember, that just means a relationship grounded in a promise. So he came to Abraham, initiated a relationship with him grounded in a promise. What was the promise that he made to Abraham? It was the promise that God would save the world. Not just the Jews, the world through Abraham's seed. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And then from the descendants of Abraham would come something called 
the nation of Israel. Just If you have time this afternoon, just go read from like Genesis 12 to the end of Genesis and a little bit into Exodus, and you'll see how this happens. But the long and short of it is that all of Abraham's descendants who received the sign of the covenant were called Israelites. Sean, isn't that a bit of an oversimplification? Yes, it is, you see, because this is in a seminar. It's like a little spiel in the middle of a sermon I'm trying to give you. But that's, that's the gist of it. Now pay attention to this point, because this point is very important, as are all the other points. The old covenant people of Israel were a mixture of believers and unbelievers. Why? Because the covenant was composed of all of Abraham's descendants, but not of all of Abraham's descendants shared in Abraham's faith. They were supposed to. That's what circumcision was supposed to symbolize. It was a call to faith. That was the idea, but all didn't. In fact, most didn't. Old Testament Israel was connected to Abraham through ethnic, political, and spiritual heritage, but not necessarily by sharing in the faith of Abraham. If I've lost you, let me try to say it another way. Distill, simplify. There were Jews who believed in the promises of God, and then there were Jews who did not believe in the promises of God. But they were all called Israelites. And so what we find within the old covenant people of Israel is that there comes to exist something called the two Israels. There is the true Israel, the believing Israel that shares in the faith of Abraham, and then there's the rest of Israel that does not share in his faith. I'm not making this up. This isn't from some systematic theology textbook. This is just what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. When he's addressing the question of God's faithfulness, has God failed to keep his promises? Paul says, no, 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 you misunderstand. This is how it always was. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all of Abraham's heirs actually believed in the promise of Abraham. Now let's take all of that and go back to John chapter 10. Throughout the Old Testament, God uses the image of a flock, the image of a sheepfold, to describe this mixed company, covenant people, known as Israel. He calls them a flock. So in this flock, there are sheep who believe, and then there are sheep who don't believe, but they're all part of this flock known as Israel, and God is their shepherd. In this morning's text, at this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is saying, guys, listen, I am the shepherd. We saw that last week, right? Jesus is saying, I am the shepherd of Israel. But he's saying more than that. In calling sheep out of the old flock, he's saying, I'm here to create a new flock, a new sheepfold. I'm here to create a new Israel. I'm calling all of the sheep that belong to me out of the old flock to create a new flock with no mixture of belief and unbelief. No more. Not in my flock. Everyone who is in this new flock that Jesus is creating will share in the faith of Abraham. The ethnicity of Abraham no longer matters. Under the Mosaic law and political structure of Abraham, it doesn't matter. In this new flock, only the faith of Abraham 
will unite the sheep together. Jesus, in saying this to these people and in everything that he does after, is just fulfilling the promises that God already made back in Jeremiah 31. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. In speaking to his disconsolate people who are wondering about the faithfulness of Yahweh, who are struggling, God makes this promise. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Listen to the promise of God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And some people might say, well, this is referring to the covenant of Moses. No, this is referring to the covenant of Moses, which is a reiteration of the covenant made to Abraham. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. You see, in the old covenant, you had to go up to your neighbor, to your brother, to your fellow Israelite, and say, Hey, you need to know the Lord. Because there were people in the covenant who didn't know the Lord, they didn't believe. But in this new covenant, you won't do that anymore because everyone in the covenant, says God, shall know me. Listen to the language. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is God's promise for his new flock. In this new flock that God promises in Jeremiah 31 and that Jesus comes and fulfills in his life and ministry, there will be no laws written on stone. Why? Because the law will be written on the hearts of those in the covenant. There will be no need to cut a covenant and have a covenant curse for those who disobey the covenant because Christ himself is the curse of the covenant on the cross. There will be no more teaching of one's neighbor because everyone will already know the Lord. That's what it means to be in the covenant. This is what Jesus came to earth to do, to create a new sheepfold greater than the old sheepfold of Israel. And guys, uh, this is a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's cataclysmic. It's apocalyptic. It is the complete reorientation of the people of God in their relationship with God. And yet, it is really only half of what Jesus is saying in this morning's text. Jesus says something even more shocking and significant, and you can see that in verse 16. He says that other sheep will be called from another flock that is not Israel. Look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What is this fold? Well, this fold is Israel. So I have other sheep that are not from Israel. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So who is this other flock? Jesus is standing at the sheep pen. There's a door, right? The gatekeeper, he's out of here. 
right? Jesus is like, hey, um, I need all of mine to come with me. The rest can stay. And, and, and you might think, ah, okay, he's done. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not done. I'm going to go to this other flock with a door. And I have other sheep to call from this different flock that perhaps you haven't even really been thinking of. Who is this flock? It's the Gentiles. It's the nations. It's everyone else that wasn't part of the nation of Israel. This, of course, is not a novel idea by Jesus. He didn't just, he, he's not just riffing here. This is not on-the-spot salvation material. This is something that God has been promising from the beginning. Let's just kind of trace our steps backwards through the Bible. In Isaiah 56, the Lord makes the promise like this. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him, that's to the Messiah, besides those already gathered. But even all the way back in, in, in Genesis 22, in, in the initial promise made to Abraham, you see the same language. Listen to what God says. God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Right? Not, and in your offspring, all the Jews will be blessed. All the nations. Friends, God's plan has been the same since the beginning, since before the foundations of the world. Right? His plan has always been to create, call, and use Israel as a means for a time to call people to himself. But the ultimate aim was out of Israel would come a Savior, Jesus, who would then call the rest of the nations to himself. Paul understood this to be exactly what God was saying to Abraham, and he talks about it in Galatians 3. Just listen to the language he uses. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, the nations, by faith, and foretold this gospel to Abraham, saying, all nations will be blessed through you. God is just doing what he has always planned to do. And friends, as we sang this morning, God always keeps his promises. All of the promises of God in all of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And in this morning's text, Jesus is saying, if you have eyes to hear, listen to what I'm telling you. Jesus is saying, listen to what I'm telling you. The promise of Genesis 3 the promise of Genesis 22, the promise of Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 56, the promise of the entire Old Testament is coming true now in me before your very eyes. In his death, Jesus is gathering all of the sheep of God, those in Israel and those outside of Israel. He's gathering them all into one new flock called the church. In John chapter 11, we're going to see this again. Listen to the language Jesus uses in John 11. Excuse me, this is uh, the high priest who prophesied that year. The high priest prophesied that, quote, Jesus would die for the nation, that's Israel, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's the Gentiles, the nations. Listen to the language that James uses in Acts 15 as he explains this salvation. Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles 
listen to this language, to take from them a people for his name. He's not saving all the Gentiles. He's taking people from the Gentiles. He's going up to the sheepfold of the Gentiles, standing at the door and saying, you're coming with me, you're coming with me, you're coming with me. It's the exact same language as verse 16. Now, let's pause here and make a necessary clarification. In creating this new flock, Jesus is not creating a second flock. He's not creating... Look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. One flock. It's not like there's going to be this old flock, the nation of Israel, all the unbelieving Jews that Jesus leaves there after he pulls those who share the faith of Abraham out. They're all just going to be there together, and then there's going to be this new flock, the church. No. When Jesus completed his redemptive work, the old covenant people of Israel ceased to exist. Friends, hear me. Truly, truly, What I say to you should be heard. The nation of Israel as a covenant people of God is no longer a thing. Israel was just a shadow pointing forward towards, like everything else in the Old Testament, towards the ultimate reality of the new covenant in Christ. And there are a couple of implications we should consider together in light of this. The first implication is in regards to the nation of Israel itself. I look forward to receiving your emails and strange apocalyptic books on Monday after I say what I say here. This is a very minor application for us today, but it's a significant one, I think. Uh, We must be careful in how we speak of the current secular nation-state of Israel. The current secular nation state of Israel is doing a lot of good in the world, and uh, politically, I'm going to tip my hand a little bit, I'm inclined to think that we should support them as they defend and promote democracy and all kinds of other things. But, whether you agree with me or not about that, here is what we must find unity in theologically. We must not speak of the secular, unbelieving nation state of Israel in terms that might lead people to believe that they are still in some kind of covenant relationship with God. They're not. Christ Jesus has created a new covenant, and the only way to get into the sheepfold is by passing through him, the door. That's why he says, I'm the door. The Jews of the current secular, unbelieving nation state of Israel have not passed through the door of faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are not in the sheepfold. And remember, there's not two flocks, the old covenant and the new covenant. No, the old covenant has passed away. There's one flock, and they're not in it. So be careful how you speak of them. The second thing that we should consider is regenerate church membership. The thing that is new, well, there's a couple of things, but the main thing that's new about the new covenant is that everyone in the covenant believes. There is no such thing as an unbelieving member in the new covenant. If there were an unbelieving member in the new covenant, it would undo everything that Jesus is saying here in John chapter 10. The whole purpose of him coming was to call out those who hear his voice, which is just a metaphor for saving faith, to call out those who hear his voice 
to be together in belief. Are you tracking? One implication of that for our churches is that we must strive insofar as is possible to reflect the nature of that new covenant with our church membership roles. The church is the embassy of heaven. We are an outpost of heaven. This is heaven's sovereign soil. And when we stamp someone as Christian and we say, yes, according to Matthew 18, all the scriptures that we, you already all know, when we say you belong to Jesus and we receive you into the church, we should do that having pretty good reason to believe that you actually do belong to Jesus. Now, this is a problem for two groups of people. Baptists and Presbyterians. Let me start with Baptists, of whom I am the foremost. The problem for Baptists, at least over the last hundred years, is our eagerness to baptize. Man, we love to baptize, don't we? We're going to be baptizing people next week. It's going to be lit. (laughs) Did I say that right? You know I'm old now when I use slang and I'm like, I don't know if I said that right. So be here for that. It's going to be amazing. We love to baptize. We do it often, and we do it right. Full submersion, counting to three, one Mississippi. Hold your breath. Two Mississippi. All the members of the Trinity. Three Mississippi. Amen. And yet, American Baptists have a tragic history over the last hundred years of baptizing people who have in no way demonstrated faith in Jesus. Get all the kids fire truck, load them up. We're going to get them all baptized. Adults are no different. I just want everyone here who, who, who's heard the message and who wants to respond to Jesus, t- turn off the lights, turn off the lights. I just want everyone here to put their phone in the air. Yes, put your phone in the air. I see you, I see you, I see you. If your phone is in the air, I want you to come down right now and get baptized and show your faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, if, if that happened to you or something similar and you really were saved, you should know that you're the exception. The vast majority of the people who go through that are just being emotionally manipulated and in some sense spiritually manipulated. And what that does is it fills Baptist churches with people who have given no indication that they can actually hear the voice of Jesus. And what happens to a church when it's full of people who have no ability to hear the voice of Jesus they go astray. We end up with churches with unqualified leadership, ineffective evangelism, unbiblical worship, unfaithful missions practices. No church is perfect, but every church will struggle 10 times as much when they allow unregenerate people to come into the fold. On to the Presbyterians. And to the Presbyterians, we might add other Protestant believers who believe in covenantal baptism. I'm talking about anyone who believes that an infant can partake in the new covenant through baptism. They cannot. Please bear with me as I repeat myself just one more time. The thing that makes the new covenant new is that everyone, from the least to the greatest, says Jeremiah, in the covenant, can hear the voice of Jesus. Your infants cannot hear the voice of Jesus. They cannot repent of their sins and trust in Christ. They do not have saving faith. 
Baptism, according to Scripture, is the outward symbol of an inward reality representing your repentance of sin and trust in Christ. It says, we as a church look at this person's life and give full credence to the idea that they can actually hear Jesus. Therefore, to give such a symbol to someone who cannot hear the voice of Jesus is a very, very serious error. More could be said on that, but let's move on to point two. Point number two, the way in which Jesus is creating a new sheepfold. How is Jesus creating the sheepfold? Well, he's doing it through two different means. Number one is sacrifice. Number one is sacrifice. In verses one through five, which we've already read, Jesus pictures himself as the shepherd of Israel. Then in verse seven, because the people didn't understand him in verse six, Jesus takes the illustration and he tweaks it slightly. He says, I'm the shepherd and I'm also the door. And you're like, you can't be the shepherd and the door. He's like, I'm Jesus. I can do that. What does it mean that Jesus is the door? It means that the only way to pass out of the old, unbelieving covenant people of God and into the new sheepfold that Jesus is creating is to pass through Jesus. Specifically, through his death, burial, and resurrection. The means by which Jesus purchases the sheep. You can see this in verse 11. Look there. Jesus connects his work with his death. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, there's one aspect of this that's just simply referring to protection. But there's another aspect of this that refers to our need to have someone die for us. You see, friends, the sheep in this illustration are not amoral. They're not morally neutral sheep. The sheep are sinners. As Isaiah 53 says, Jesus must die because we, like sheep, have gone astray. And that's intentional going astray. That's morally culpable going astray. That's rebellion. That's a biblical picture. And the wages of sin is death. Therefore, there must be a payment made for the sin of these sheep. And in Jesus, there is. In the, in the gospel, Jesus, who's the shepherd, also becomes the sheep. If you're like, man, he's the shepherd, he's the gate, he's the that's what it means to be God. You can just be everything. In the gospel, Jesus, the shepherd, becomes like the sheep and gives himself in their place. And by the way, this is not, again, just some theological trope that some really clever systematic theologian came up with. This is just Bible. Listen, the prophet Isaiah describes Jesus in his sacrificial death in this way. He, the shepherd, was led like a lamb to the slaughter. John the Baptist understood Jesus in this way, which is why when he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Peter understood this. When he wrote about us being saved, he talked about us being saved by the precious blood as of a lamb, the blood of Christ. John, the author of this gospel, understood this when he wrote the book of Revelation. He refers to Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God 31 times. In Revelation, which 
Revelation 7, which we read earlier. Listen to this language. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. Jesus, the shepherd, becomes the Lamb, and then in heaven he goes back to being the shepherd. Amazing. And on the cross, the good shepherd lays down his life for us. He gives his life up as a sacrificial offering for us, these wicked, wandering sheep. Now, friends, it must be noted here that Jesus did not die for all sheep. Jesus does not lay down his life for every individual sheep in the world. He dies for his sheep, the sheep that he's gathering into his new flock. Theologians call this by different names, limited atonement, particular redemption. I don't really care what you call it. I just want you to ask yourself if what I'm saying is true from God's word. Not what your tradition says, not what your mima says, not what the guy who college disciples you when you were in some college ministry says, not what your church's official position says. I want to know what God's word says. God's word, as we can plainly see, because scripture is perspicuous, that is, it is, it is obvious, you can read it and understand it. You don't need an army of interpreters to help you see what Jesus is saying here. According to what Jesus says in John chapter 10, is that Jesus only dies for his sheep. Look at verse 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Well, who are the sheep that he's laying down his life for? We already saw this. Look at verse 6. Go back to verse 6. Uh, excuse me, verse 5. And eh, might as well start in verse 4. You know what? We should just start in verse 3. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep, his own sheep, by name, and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. So there's this huge group of sheep, and Jesus says, they don't all belong to me. Some of them belong to me. I'm here to get them, not the rest that stay behind. Where does Jesus get these sheep? Well, the text says, the Father gives them to me. So friends, who does Jesus die for? He dies for all the sheep given to him by the Father. Now, we're going to talk about this more in a minute. Just kind of put a pin in that. Let me move on to the second thing that we need to see here. The second way that Jesus is creating a new flock is by speaking. You can clearly see here in John 10 that Jesus creates this new flock by calling the sheep that belong to him. He doesn't go into the sheep pen and crack a whip. He doesn't get one of those animal control collars, you know, with the wire thing that you put around their neck and lead them out, right? No, he, he calls out to them. And he says, my sheep, my sheep, not all the sheep, just the sheep that belong to me, they come. They hear my voice and they come. You see, friends, most of us have been trained to believe because we're just not that well-educated in the Bible, that people become sheep when they respond to the voice of Jesus, right? I wasn't a sheep, then I heard his voice, and I was like, oh, I'll follow him, and now I'm one of his sheep. That's not what Jesus says. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite of what Jesus says. Jesus says that the sheep hear his voice, 
because they belong to him. Just with that in mind, let's just go back to verse three again. We, we can't look back at the text enough. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and his sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Which means that some sheep don't recognize the voice of Jesus. Why? Because they're not his. Think about the blind man. Do you guys remember the blind man back from John chapter 9? The Pharisees were calling out to the blind man. Jesus was calling out to the blind man. Two voices in competition. The blind man chose to follow Jesus. That's what all of chapter 10 is about. Jesus is explaining, why is it that this blind guy followed me and not you? The answer is because when the blind man heard the voice of Jesus, he said, ah, there's my master. There he is. The Pharisees called out and he was like, I don't, I don't recognize your voice. Jesus speaks and he goes, there he is. There's my master. That's the one. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Now listen, guys. I just need everyone in the room, just whatever you're doing, whatever distractions you have, just stop. You are about to behold something glorious. If you're like, Sean, I haven't been surprised by grace lately. It's been a long time since the gospel's really affected me, since I've felt something, uh, just, I, just, I, need some, I need to hear something from God that will remind me of the glory of the gospel. And I know you're like, Sean, you're really selling this, it better be good. Friends, it is good. Look at, listen to verse 15. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Do you see this? Jesus is saying that his sheep hear his voice in the same way that the Father and the Son recognize each other's voice. Will the Son ever hear the voice of the Father and not recognize it? No. Will the Father ever hear the voice of the Son and not recognize it? No. In that same way, in the interconnectedness of the Father and the Son, we share. The sheep of God hear the voice of Jesus the same way that the members of the Trinity hear the voice of one another. I can't even begin to tell you how significant this is for every way we live our lives. We could just talk about evangelism. Oh, evangelism is so hard. It's so discouraging. I had another talk and it didn't work. The family member is like, things are going to be awkward at Thanksgiving. My coworker said something to the boss and now I can't talk about Jesus at work anymore. I've been trying to have this conversation for 10 years and it's going nowhere. I've been praying for my family member nonstop and it just isn't working. Friends, take comfort. If the person you're talking to belongs to Jesus, they will hear his voice. They may not hear it through you. They may not hear it when you want them to hear it. They may hear it on their deathbed as they're lying there unconscious and the gospel is ruminating around in their head and heart. But when the gospel of Christ, the word of God from heaven, goes out to his sheep, there is no chance that they won't hear it. 
It's not possible. So you go be faithful. Don't worry about the results. You just go out and say it again. You just know that if they're meant to hear, they will hear. And if they're not meant to hear, they won't. But God's got it. Before moving on from this point, we should pause and make one more thing crystal clear. Jesus does not go up to his sheep in general and ask, does anyone want to come with me? Verse 3, look at verse 3 again. It says that he calls his sheep by name. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. By name. Friends, do you see how very specific Jesus' mission is? Imagine a, a U.S. ambassador has been captured in a hotel in, in, in West Africa. Terrorists have, have captured him and the Navy SEALs are sent in. The Navy SEALs aren't there to rescue everyone in that hospital, or excuse me, in that hotel. They're there to rescue the ambassador. That's their mission. It's very particular. That's what Jesus' mission is. It's very particular. He came to save those who have been given to him by the Father in eternity's past, and he knows them by name. Jesus walks up to the sheepfold and he says, Trent, you're coming with me. Susan, you're mine. Joey, you're coming with me. Tyler, let's go. One of the reasons why some theologians prefer the term particular redemption when we're talking about this aspect of salvation is because it captures the very specific and particular nature of Jesus' work on the cross. Friends, did you know that when Jesus came to earth to save us, he came to save people whose names were written in a book? That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus references this book in Luke 10. He tells his disciples that they should rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You know, before I understood all this stuff, I, when I would read that verse, I would think about one of those planes in the sky that would write, you know, with a, you know, happy anniversary, my love, you know, kind of a thing. It's not written in the sky. No, it's in heaven. There's a book in heaven, and the names of all the people who have been given to Christ by the Father in eternity's past, their names are in that book. Paul references that book in his letter to the Philippians. He says that we should honor our fellow gospel, gospel laborers as those whose names are written in the book of life. Now here's the temptation. When you think about this book, you might think about it as a book that's being actively written. You might think about it like a book that has a, a ledger with many lines, and on each line goes a name, Right, And as each person comes to Christ, another name is written and it's added. And by the time we get to the end of history, the book will be full and all the lines will have the names of all the people that came to believe. That's exactly backwards. According to Scripture, this book was completed before the foundations of the world. Listen to Revelation 13.8. This is talking about those who aren't saved, but you still get the point. Everyone's name who has not been written before the foundations of the world, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Friends, we have to understand that when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, he came to save a people who were chosen before the foundations of the world. Jesus did not take nameless, faceless avatars to the cross. 
Jesus did not come to earth to save an amorphous blob of humanity. Get in while the getting's good, the ship's going down. Not Jesus' plan. He came with a list. And if you are a Christian, your name was on the list when he went to the cross. He took you, Andrew. (laughs) He took you to the cross. He knew he was coming to save you. He knew your first name, your middle name, your last name. He knew your nickname, which is Elmo. (laughs) He knew that about you, and he took it to the cross. He knew your DNA structure. He knew your sin and rebellion. He knew all of you, every part of you, the worst parts of you that you are ashamed of. He knew that, and he took it to the cross. He came for you because he loves you, and he gave his life. Listen to me. If you are a Christian... For you. Consider what that means for missions. Oh, man. Y'all ready to go to the field? We can go right now. The nations, they're out there. It's impossible. Billions of people have never heard the name of Christ. How can we ever do this? How is the mission going to be completed? Ah, he has his people. And he's sending us out, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be brutal, and there's going to be suffering, and we're going to feel like it's never going to get done. But it will get done, because Jesus accomplished it already on the cross. Friends, there's no such thing as a name that Jesus took to the cross that doesn't eventually get saved. It was in the book. Long before the cross, it was in the book. We're not going to get to the book in heaven and be like, well, actually, there are some names in here that didn't quite make it. None of this is in my notes. Let's keep going. Point number three, the short point that I promised. The reason why Jesus is creating a new sheepfold. As we conclude our sermon, I want to conclude with a question. What does God want most for you, Christian? What does he want most for you in the world? What does the shepherd want for his sheep more than anything. In this morning's text, Jesus tells us that what he wants most for his people, the thing that he gave his life to purchase, you can tell the value of something when you look at what someone's willing to give up in order to get it, right? This is what Jesus gave up his life to purchase for you. It's the abundant life. Look at verses 10 and 11. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What is this abundant life that Jesus promises? Well, first, let's just talk about what it's not. The prosperity preachers love this verse. They preach on it, write books about it. It's kind of the you know, the, the, the foundation of their whole ministry. According to the prosperity gospel, Jesus wants to give us an abundant life that consists basically of three things. Number one, an abundance of physical health. You know, never going to get old. Back's never going to get bad. We're never going to be sick, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's truly tragic irony when some of the people saying this from the pulpit are wearing glasses, 
showing that they themselves are struggling physically. That's number one, an abundance of physical health. Number two, an, a, a financial abundance. They would say that Jesus died, the abundant life for us is, 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 an, is a financial abundance. You know, he wants to secure our financial wealth, a good credit score, a full savings account, stocks always going up, random gifts and surprises in the mail. You know the whole deal. Then there's a more modern version of the prosperity gospel, which has kind of taken that old material view of, of wealth and blessings, and it's, it's made it more therapeutic. This new prosperity gospel says that Jesus died to purchase the abundant emotional life for you, right? Jesus died so that you would never have to experience stress, anxiety, fear, depression, anything that could be considered psychological poverty or psychological illness, you know? He is the great self-care savior. And friends, these are the wolves that Jesus is referencing. Yes, in context, the wolves are very obviously the Pharisees, but they're an archetype for everyone who comes along and tries to lie to the sheep and lead the sheep away from the good shepherd. The prosperity gospel preachers are one manifestation of that. They say that Jesus died to give you, you ready for it? Stuff. Stuff. How How underwhelming is that? They believe that the Father elected and predestined and adopted you for worldly possessions. They would say that the Son emptied himself, came to the earth, lived a perfect life of obedience, went to the cross, suffered the wrath of the Father, was buried and raised again in three days and ascended into the heavens so that you would be doing well financially. They believe that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you so that you can find emotional fulfillment in your job and in your relationships. The prosperity gospel thinks that the abundant life is just God giving us everything that Satan tried to tempt Jesus with in the wilderness. This is what I call the Tom Brady gospel, right? Tom Brady worked hard his whole life, got all the money, beautiful supermodel wife, Life is easy, he's famous, he's the best athlete in the world, I guess, in his sport. He has everything anyone could ever want. And they say, how does it feel, Tom? And he goes, uh, I, I, didn't, I thought it would be better than this. It's because it's not the abundant life. The true gospel says that the abundant life is what we receive when we receive Christ himself. The abundant life is a life lived in light of the gospel. It's a life lived at war with sin and Satan in this fallen world. It's a life of repentance. Let me say that again. The abundant life is a life of repentance. And man, does that get hard. It's the life of sanctification. It's the communal life, a life lived together with all of the saints. The abundant life is the life of sacrifice giving up earthly treasure for the sake of eternal treasure. The abundant life is spent studying the wondrous works of God in the Word of God. The abundant life is spent communing with the Lord in prayer, beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. The abundant life is a life that is poured out as a drink offering. The abundant life is a life lived as a living sacrifice. The abundant life picks up that massive, heavy cross 
every day and walks with it. The abundant life is a life that dies every single day and then resurrects in Christ Jesus just to do it all over again. The abundant life is not a life with a full bank account. It's a life full of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The abundant life is a life giving over to serving the poor, the oppressed, and the lost. It's a life of justice and righteousness. It's a light of life of holding fast to the gospel through all kinds of trials and tribulations. It is a life where we experience an ever-increasing sense of the nearness of the holy God of the universe. The abundant life is a forgiven life. It's a life united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Friends, the abundant life is not a life where Christ comes and pulls you out of the valley of the shadow of death. The abundant life is him leading you through the valley of the shadow of death where you will not fear because you see his rod and staff at your right hand. And I haven't even started talking about heaven. (laughs) This is now. This is here. This is abundance. And heaven is going to be, I can't even begin. I don't even know what words to say. It's just going to be infinitely, exponentially better. In heaven, we're going to be beholding the glory of God with unveiled faces. We'll never cease to enjoy him. Just listen to God's word. God hasn't left us to try to figure out what that day is going to be like. No, he holds it out in front of us and he says, for the joy that is set before you, follow me. This is the joy. After these things I looked and behold the great multitude which no one could number. Listen to this language. From all nations, from all tribes, all peoples, all tongues, standing before the throne And before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation! It belongs to our God who sits on the throne. Salvation belongs to the Lamb. And then, of course, all the angels are there. They're getting caught up. They can't be quiet. This is crazy. The angels stood around the throne and the elders of the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God because they couldn't hold back. No one can hold back. How can you hold back? You're beholding the glory. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. This is the abundant life. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. This is the abundant life. And they shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne, will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
This is the abundant life made available to you if you will turn away from your sin and follow Jesus, the true shepherd. Let's pray. Lord, there are no words, but your Holy Spirit gives us words when we fumble and stumble to capture your glory. God, we pray that you will move this morning and that your spirit will be at work. We pray this in confidence and true faith. Amen.